0: Hello everyone and welcome to Aston University's Economics, Finance and Entrepreneurship Department's very own Learning and Teaching podcast. I'm Krishma Patel, a teaching fellow in economics and in this podcast I invite various academics to share some of the interesting and exciting things that they are doing in learning and teaching this episode is actually a special episode that is based on the recent Development in Economics Education Conference, or D for short, that was run by the Economics Network. I recently attended this conference and I was actually very fortunate to be invited to conduct some informal interviews with some of the speakers and attendees at the conference. And so what this episode is going to do is uh, bring together all of those interviews to give you a flavour of the conference this year. Before I start, I figured I should probably give a bit of an introduction to myself, which I realise I haven't actually done on this podcast yet. So just to give a bit of context, um, I'm Krishma Patel, a teaching fellow, which uh, is the equivalent of a teaching-focused lecturer, as some might call it, in the Economics, Finance and Entrepreneurship Department at Aston University in the UK. I would describe myself as an early career academic. I started my full-time position here at Aston about a year ago though before that I held several visiting lecturer positions at a couple of other universities. My research interests lie in industrial organisation, but I'm also very interested in learning and teaching research, and this is in part why I started this podcast. So, as an early career academic, I was really excited to be able to attend my first D conference and get to talk to lots of the other attendees and speakers at the conference as well. So, to kick off this episode and give you an overall picture of what the D conference was like before I go on to sharing some of the discussions I had with speakers about their research, I first wanted to share a discussion that I had with Demetra Petropoulou, a professor and deputy head of department at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Demetra is also on the Economics Network executive group and was the lead on the Thank you so much, Demetra, for joining me today. Because I know that you were the lead on D uh, from the Economics Network Executive Group, um, so I'm really excited uh, to talk to you. Um, I thought it would be really nice just to get a little bit of an idea about the the general aims of the conference, and in particular, the kind of themes that came up this year.
1: Yeah, fantastic. So we're actually a, a wider group, a conference and symposia group in the Economics Network that's comprised of five or six of us, and. Um, really when reviewing the abstracts because what we do is we anonymize and then review abstracts and decide which ones to select for the conference. I think there were different themes that emerged and I think the aims of the conference are threefold. Um, First, First, to to sort of uh, cement the network of education-focused economists uh, that are operating in higher education in the UK and beyond, because we had people from overseas and, of course, our keynote, Gail, at the University of Kentucky, and there were others joining the conference internationally. It is is growing in terms of its reach, but it's still largely predominantly um, uh, UK-based education-focused economists. So it's really about... um, Creating a space where we can share and discuss best practice, um, also forge um, alliances and possibly create the seeds of future research agenda. So uh, I think it's more about seeing what is done effectively elsewhere. What can we learn from it? What, How can we inform our own practice in our own institutions, whether it's in our own teaching or more broadly for those who have say leadership responsibilities for leading a program to go back and reflect on their program and sort of trying to sort of innovate and um, update and um, keep on top of what's happening elsewhere, get ideas for our own practice within our own institution, but also see the space for potential alliances across institutions. Um, there was a mix of, as you can, as you saw in D, we have a mix of, of um, sessions. Uh, really this year, we also had a new theme, which was the panels because it's an ever-changing landscape right so the higher education landscape is continually evolving so we thought it would be useful to have a panel to reflect on how the the wider landscape is evolving so that's Mm -hmm. sort of one layer to try and get a sense of where it's all heading and so the QAA subject benchmark statement panel for example gave um Uh, some aspects that are sort of perhaps being discussed right now around, for example, um, diversity, inclusion and so forth within curricula and other areas. So that's one thing. The other area is the landscape around pedagogic research and economics education. Um, As the number of education-focused academics grows in the UK um, and they're going through the career track that that implies... And um, there's going to be growing need for people to um, explore pedagogic opportunities for research, um, forge alliances with colleagues. And I think the conference is a fantastic place, both for getting ideas um, and also to saying, well, actually, you know, we could maybe join forces and do a, um, a cross-institutional study, for example. Um, so and then the third type of session uh, and that's right. The first was the panel to understand the landscape. The second was sort of the workshops. And those are supposed to be practical Um, opportunities to really think about how we implement things Uh, because one aspect is sort of educational innovations and then how do we actually roll them out in practice and one of the Mm -hmm. sessions I attended was around designing a group work I mean a group work is um, increasingly common but increasingly potentially anxiety inducing (laughs) for students but also for the colleagues who set it up. So thinking about implementation and then the third is sort of actual research around what we know about economics education. What, how, to, how important are different, um, for example, how important are sort of nudges in helping students? So sort of taking our knowledge of research and things we know more generally around, for example, um, you know, from our economics training, applying that in pedagogic research and sort of trying to broaden the scope of knowledge in this field. I think so. These are the three aims, um, really. Uh, practice, so sort of the actual nitty gritty of like rolling out, implementing sort of pedagogical innovation, yeah. uh, thinking more about what we can learn more broadly from research, and then where that all fits into the higher education landscape. Great,
0: well, yeah, and and a lot of that really came came through for sure. Um, definitely, as you mentioned at the the start, um, this idea of a community. I really felt that, which was which was so nice. Um, and and also you know there, like you said there was such a variety of of different sessions. I mean a lot of us are saying it was so hard
1: to be able to choose between uh, which know. session to attend. We, yeah, we try. Well, see, we try to put as many sessions as possible because we want as many people to participate. So we had three parallel sessions. Sometimes it's two, been two in the past, but we we stuck to three. But you know we tried to cluster by themes. But no, I felt the same. I sort of wanted to attend them all, but you know. Um, what can you do? It's true at all conferences, right?
0: Yes, exactly. But but the good thing was that there were obviously lots of breaks in between, lunches, the amazing uh, dinner, which we had as well. Um, so these are all also um, obviously an opportunity to have some coffee, but also uh, yeah. to, to chat to and people.
1: Live entertainment, thanks to the Economics Network. <laughs> if you didn't come to the conference, you have to come in person to find out what I'm talking about.
0: Yes, uh, actually, it's it's quite uh, legendary because I had heard heard about this entertainment before I had come. And I was like, what? Um, And and you're right. You need to see it in person to truly understand. (laughs) Exactly. It's all part of, of the magic of the yeah. <laughs> so I guess related to that as well is that I think um, this was uh, the first conference after a few years that was held in person right because of obviously the effects of the pandemic and stuff I think the previous
1: one was online so. Yes it was the the previous one it's 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 biannual so every two years and the previous one was intended to be at Harriet Watt University and it was wonderful to actually hold it this year at Heriot <laughs> Watt where it was initially intended um I, I participated in the online one two years ago. It's just not the same. Um, I think the, the the part that really stands out is the networking and the informal chat in between the sessions where people are exchanging ideas. And you can't really replicate that online in quite the same, same way. And it was at a time in our lives when we were all online a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think there was uh, less appetite to do that. And of course, a lot of the conference last time was around responding to COVID. Whereas now we're sort of obviously got, we had a session on takeaway messages that emerged. We had a a dedicated session, but just the one, right? Just one session on takeaways from COVID. But what was really interesting was a lot of the projects now, um, two years later, either involved um, completely COVID unrelated things, which is, yeah, is good to see and <laughs> new things new things on the agenda that are interesting I mean uh, how do we um, inspire students to make the right choices through their education or um, you know very much around um, in-person learning not necessarily around think of course aspects of you know how to balance the synchronous and the asynchronous are still very relevant um, today yeah. As we, but yeah no the, I think that the networking side the fact that we were together I think there was a a really positive spirit I think people were actually giddy it was my first in-person conference after the pandemic I must say right so I was definitely excited and I really got the feeling that for many of us it was the first time we'd seen each other in person sometimes for four years and wow um, I know uh because you know there's a lot as you know um Many participants of D are involved in other aspects of the economics network. And a lot of what we offer is online just so that it's more accessible. And D is um, a really key opportunity for us to get together in person. And we we just didn't have that last time. So it is very different and, and it just reinforces the value of the unscripted interaction. So, you know, I think the program is the food for thought and then the things that happen around that space. Are, are sort of what you know the the reflections and the chats are sort of probably how it translates into action in a way uh, and yeah. I think yeah and that's yeah. the best bit yeah that,
0: that is such a w- good way to put it actually and and that's absolutely true um I even spoke to people at the conference who said you know ah I've got like uh, an idea for a paper out of this and a collaboration out of this so um that's absolutely. that's what it's all about isn't it
1: one other th- thought that it actually comes to me now, and that is, which is of growing relevance, also, of course, with GDPR concerns, is that a lot of pedagogic research that happens in the, in the context of economics education would happen using data that emerge from our own students, possibly um, students on our own courses. And there is an ethical dimension to d- um, gathering data in that context, because students are you know taking courses at university to get a degree and on the way we're collecting data that we've used for our own research and some universities are more um stringent on their um on that and others are kind of more willing to give authorization for that data Mm. to be collected and used obviously would be used anonymously but still so I think there is a conversation to be had and a lot of the informal conversations I had were was around um what are the steps for getting approval for mm. some of this pedagogic research. Um yeah, and I think some expertise in that was being shared, which is which is really nice as well. You know, how to yeah. go about it in practice.
0: Yeah, that's great. And and uh, the other thing on on themes, um, AI. So this was an interesting one because um I felt like Throughout a lot of the different um, kind of sessions, they weren't necessarily uh, sessions that were focused on AI, but there were a lot of papers where AI was kind of coming through, even to areas that you might not initially uh, think
1: that it would. Right. So I think obviously we're at the early stages of reflecting how AI is going to impact education delivery or learning, or you know, more widely the economy. We, You know, we're still reflecting on even the possibilities and it's so fast moving that um one of the issues is you might you know the capacity of ai is evolving so rapidly that it sort of becomes hard to keep up but obviously it's a conversation that started and i sort of see ai feeding into all sorts of discussions um as universities so i think many universities responded initially with prohibition Mm -hmm. um because we don't know what we're dealing with students are simply prohibited to use it um and now of course in the second year in which the second academic year after which um, last year it was launched. And then this year, we're, as we enter the second academic year, now I think people are thinking more around, well, if we were to use it as an educational tool,
2: yeah. how might
1: we use it? So yes, there are, there are themes around that. Um, it didn't make its way into the subject benchmark statement, because <laughs> <you know, laughs> it's new, uh, but yeah, I think that what's interesting, is that there's there's an interplay between AI and two important themes, which is skills, employability skills, but broader skills. Um, if if AI is going to be used in the workplace in a variety of different ways, um, it's quite likely that you know we might, in time, if not immediately, have to think about how we embed that tool in students every day. Yeah. And then the other aspect is inclusivity. We talk a lot about making studies more inclusive and we know that there could be attainment gaps that emerge from maybe language barriers and so forth. And if these language models could be used as a sort of leveling the playing field um, in some aspects around language, without compromising integrity, Mm. that is something to think about. And And of course increasingly economics programs um, involve maybe programming dimensions or sort of things around coding
3: mm.
1: and AI can offer a lot there so there's so many aspects of economics education which AI could impact and I think the conversation has started I don't think it's anywhere near finished
0: yeah <laughs> uh,
1: but yes it, it fed through in many in many ways
0: yeah 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 Um, So just to finish off with then, I think um, the last thing I wanted to ask you is for kind of future um, D conferences for anyone who is listening, who wants to uh, present or even attend, do you have any advice or words of encouragement or wisdom which you can give to them?
1: Oh, yes. It's uh, it's always so difficult to choose the papers. No, of course. Um, Okay. Uh, I think Many colleagues think that the, their practice might not be innovative enough or not worth um, talking about in this context. Um, that is really not the case. Often what might seem rather small tweaks to a rather established course can have big effects. And you know, people think of, economic, of, of pedagogic innovation or educational innovation economics as sort of completely ripping out what we had before and replacing it with something completely different and most economics education innovation it doesn't look like that at all it's mm. about in enhance, small enhancements that have big impact and if you have been reflect if people out there have been reflecting on their edu- on their delivery of economics teaching and education and you know did something that might appear m- a modest change a low-cost change that actually had a huge impact on student satisfaction or outcomes or engagement or something tangible um that's really useful for people in the profession to know about right so it's sometimes the 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 smaller what something that looks more modest that actually might be more broadly applicable Um, so and it doesn't have to be some um incredible randomized trial or anything or you know um it's it's really about showcasing interesting practice so if someone has interesting practice uh don't you know don't be modest it doesn't have to be a research project that is you know know, reinventing the whole degree or anything like that um everything is welcome and but my only thought was when when proposing a topic it would be interesting to think about it from the perspective of which audience would benefit from it and pitching it as such so right. that when when a proposal is being assessed it's really useful um for the person writing the proposal to to reflect on who would benefit from my presentation and spelling that out because that's what what we're looking for right something that might be of broad interest and could have value to others um so yeah that's my advice that's great
0: thank you yeah I really like what you said about um kind of like a small enhancement but a big impact I really like that that's that's great <laughs>
1: yeah, it can happen it's hard sometimes you do a big enhancement it has a small impact <laughs> you don't really know um even actually sometimes knowing that things don't work mm. is useful like we did we spent two years planning x and you know what it didn't have a big effect <laughs> now that's, that's actually quite useful to know so people don't go off and do it um, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and and the
0: the feeling that I got from being in the presentations was that it's just a very nice environment and a nice community of people to be able to present to and just get really valuable feedback and, and
1: comments valuable feedback especially if one is thinking of publishing the work down the line as a, as a paper getting mm-hmm. feedback getting ideas on what more to do with the data that they do have um, so I'm hoping that people pre- not only took it found a good opportunity to present their work but to develop their work further and um, think of ways that maybe next time they collect the data, they could add something or tweak something. So I'm hoping that, you know, it, it, the conference serves as a, as a sort of drive for, the, for development of projects um, rather than just showcasing them.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you so much. So as you would have heard from that clip, the two-day D conference was filled with presentations within a variety of themes. There was a fantastic keynote talk, great opportunities to network, and of course, the very memorable conference dinner as well. So um, you'll get to hear about all of these things over this special two-part episode. One of the things that I think was really great about D was having the opportunity to be around so many other like-minded academics who clearly have a real passion for teaching economics. Um, I feel like, like me, many of the attendees and presenters were in teaching focused positions. And so I found it really interesting to be able to share experiences of this. There were actually uh, several papers which were focused on the various positions that academics might hold in universities. So, for example, there was a paper which was focused on research focused academics within teaching focused institutions. And then there was also a paper on experiences and perceptions of people in teaching and scholarship scholarship positions as well. So I had the opportunity to talk to one of the authors of this paper, Tisha Emerson, who's a uh, professor and chair at East Carolina University in the US. So here is a clip where I talk to Tisha about her research that is joint with many of the other presenters at the conference as well. So thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, So could you start off by telling us a little bit about the project that you've been working on?
4: Yes, so what we're doing is we have an international group and we wanted to better understand the landscape for teaching track faculty as compared to research track faculty. And um, we, in particular, wanted to look at potential similarities and differences between the UK, Canada, and the US, so English-speaking countries. Ultimately, I suppose we would be interested in. Expanding it, but um, we had a bit of a tight timeline, so we decided to focus on these three countries first. And um, we also wanted to know more about the perceptions of people on the teaching track how they felt about um, job security, um, how they felt in their job, Mm. uh, you know, how they were treated in their departments, and um, just about sort of their teaching loads and things like that.
0: Okay, great. And and kind of where did this idea originate from
4: though? So it really kind of came from Avi Cohen and I think it's because um, Avi originally was teaching in the States mm. and then he moved to Canada and he noticed quite um, a significant difference at right. least it seemed to him yeah. um, that there was more job security. Um, There was much more likelihood it seemed that there might be the opportunity of tenure in canada and not so much in the states and so he wanted to explore that so well maybe a bit about what the process is yeah we started um with a A unrepresentative sample. um, Really, just trying to do a quick pre-survey and trying to identify individuals who we might interview. Mm -hmm. And so, this is really the qualitative portion of our study, uh, which I'll be presenting at D. So we used the the very relatively brief survey um, to identify general ideas and also people to interview, and then we went through and did about 70 interviews total, which we then um, analyzed using qualitative methods. Then what we have been doing since then, so we finished the interviews in um, March, April of this year, and we're working through the the analysis of that, And then during the summer, we developed a larger survey, which we um, tried to get a much more representative sample in the three countries, and we have a um, a little over 300 usable responses across the three countries, um, which we are now doing the analysis of that larger survey, and that will be reported at the ASSA. Um, in January in San Antonio.
0: Great, thank you. Um, and in terms of like early insights, is there anything you can share with us so far?
4: What we found is that there actually are a number of similarities across the three countries. Um, there's a lot of teaching, of course. Like the focus is teaching. There are lots of students that are being taught across the countries. Although the the average number of students varies somewhat between the three countries, um, with Canada and the U.S. having somewhat larger total number of students mm-hmm. that a, a particular faculty member might teach, and um, and then we also saw that, as Avi had expected, that there did seem to be somewhat more job security in terms of sort of tenure. In Canada and uh, somewhat in the UK Mm. but in the U.S. um, there there was relatively few people who reported either having tenure or being on a tenure track Um, but in the states uh, there are these rolling contracts which seem to be sort of bunched at the one three and five year intervals and so if you have a five-year contract that is sort of more like it is sort of a soft type of security Yeah. yeah And when you're teaching so many students, it's very difficult to replace someone who, mm. say, teaches, you know, um, seven hundred to a thousand students a year. Yeah. What are you going to do? You know, and they, they do generate quite a bit of um, of revenue for the institution. Yeah. So it's a, it's a maybe a different type of job security, but also sort of across the board. Um, even though the three countries I think are at somewhat different levels of the position evolution. Um, they're all, we're all still seeing evolution in what does it exactly mean Mm. to have a tenure track as opposed to sort of the standard research track position? And um, where have we come from when it first was kind of introduced? And how is it being formalized over time? And I, I think we realize we're not at an equilibrium but of course the research track has been around for a very long Mm. time so it's not surprising that that is sort of more or less at an equilibrium Um, but I was talking to one of my co-authors Christian this morning and um, we were sort of saying you know it could be that as the teaching track is evolving there could be feedback effects that affect the equilibrium on the research track, Mm. which might be interesting to think about down the road
0: yeah yeah that's super interesting because I do um, keep hearing people say you know it was quite different um, a while ago like the the kind of teaching positions that we have now Um, so I think this this research is really useful in that sense as well what are you kind of hoping um,
4: to be able to do with this uh, the findings of your research I think a lot of it is to just have a better understanding Mm -hmm. of of what exactly things look like now um, and also have it uh, so there's there is some research on the teaching track prior to ours but combined with that and then to continue onward to have an I- a better idea of how this is evolving. And perhaps to the extent that there is still an evolution taking place, a better understanding could maybe impact policy um, going forward in, you know, in a positive way.
0: Yeah, yeah. so it could be a, a really positive thing for people who are on these uh, in these teaching positions yes. to get a, a better idea yes. of what to
4: expect. I, th- I think to some extent we're finding that people feel a little bit isolated. Mm. Um, there are, you know, it, it depends on the particular institution, Absolutely. but some... Institutions may have a single person on that teaching track in their department. Others there there might be you know as much as 25 percent of the department is but it's still somewhat isolated. Yeah, and they might not be networking as well across institutions so I think this will even just give individuals on the track a better idea of their position and how it Fits in the larger landscape of the teaching track,
0: yeah, definitely. Both
4: in their country and then internationally as well.
0: Yeah, that sounds really good. I, I feel like I'm, I'm very fortunate um, at the institution I'm at, which is Aston. Um, I feel like there's a very clear kind of route um, for the for the teaching track positions. That's great because everybody
4: seems to think that. Oh,
0: really? Yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes Um But um, talking to others at different institutions, I, I do realise that um, mm-hmm. there's a lot more kind of uncertainty and, and a lot kind of of fewer um, people in that position, as yes. you said. So um, that sounds really, really great. And I look forward to seeing where the, where the research goes.
4: So do I, I think.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. So that was my chat with Tisha. And I think it's great that this kind of research is being done. And the scale that it is being done on means that we can get a better understanding of teaching focused positions in economics, both within the UK, for example, but also across countries as well. And I think it's really good that this discussion is uh, happening. So then next, I got to sit down with Fabio Arico and Richie Woodard from the University of East Anglia. Fabio Arico is a professor at UEA and also on the Economics Network Executive Group. Richie Woodard, who you'll hear from in the interview in a second, is a lecturer in economics at UEA. And at D, they presented their research on working while studying, which provides insight into the factors that led students to seek employment during their studies. Here's a clip from my chat with them. So I really enjoyed your uh, presentation, um, looking at what motivates students to seek employment over the course of their university studies. So I wanted to start by asking you just to give a little bit of an overview of of what you you were looking at.
5: So, I mean, I think the conversation for the research really started between us from um, sort of talking about students coming to us who were saying, I can't attend this teaching event. I can't participate. because I have to work. And we hadn't really seen that before. So all those students worked while they were studying, it seemed that uh, work was taking more of a priority than the study was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we discussed that as a group, and we really wanted to understand why that was the case. There's lots of contextual factors around the, um, the pandemic, um, the fact that we have more students from less privileged backgrounds who might need to work alongside their studies to, to get by, and different things like this. Um, we really want to understand those motivators, those drivers. Yeah. Um, so we hypothesized a few of them, our students working out of pure necessity, um, because they need to get by. Do they want to afford some extra luxuries in life, you know, have a bit of money to, to enjoy themselves yeah. while they study? Or are they doing it for employability skills? So these were our sort of hypothesized drivers um, which we then wanted to investigate a little bit more and really be informed by the students voice on this so we can sort of have a guess of why they're doing it and look at a few different things but we really wanted to hear from the students themselves yeah. why they're studying yeah. uh, why they're working while they study
0: yeah that sounds great so what did you how did you collect the uh, the information?
5: So we're gonna have a few strategies, um, pretty much taking a a mixed methods approach. So we've um, just run a pilot survey so far, um, which asked some quantitative questions, so some multiple choice, um, picking from a list, that kind of quantitative data. Um, But we also gave some free text responses where they could give, um, you know, say things in their own words a little bit, which we could then analyze and help um, sort of inform how we're thinking about um, this issue. So we've run that pilot survey, um, we've got some initial insights, um, we then want to tweak that survey and run it for a bit longer, increase that sample size a little bit here for more students and make sure we're hearing from all of the different demographics yeah. that we possibly can. And then we also, um, are, as part of that survey, inviting them for qualitative interviews where we can uh, dig in a little bit more, ask them about some of their responses, ask them to elaborate on some of the bits and pieces. Um, and yeah, hear even more from them that way as well.
0: Yeah, sounds great. Um, So then are there any kind of initial insights that you can share with us and and were they in line with what you expected?
5: I mean, so I would say that some of the findings were what we expected. Um, Sort of students were thinking about these three main drivers. Mm. I think what maybe surprised us a little bit possibly is that they were slightly more about working to afford the wants rather than needs, although there was still a significant portion working out of necessity, it yeah. um, wasn't necessarily the majority. And then another really interesting driver came out of this like, pilot survey through the free text responses, um, which we weren't expecting at all, and this was around the actually enjoying that aspect of work. Some students talked about wanting to take a break from their studies and do something a bit different, they mm. talked about wanting to go out and meet people. Um, actually just enjoying that work time Um, so this is an initial driver that we hadn't really hypothesized and it shows the importance of listening to students and getting their experience Uh, to inform um, this issue and hopefully ultimately um, affect the policy around it as well.
0: Sounds great and um, where are you hoping that you can kind of um, take this research next?
5: So there's um, possibly a, a few different issues. So it's obviously internal policy mm-hmm. of the universities. Um, so, I mean, this is just an example, it's not something I'm necessarily advocating for, but one university um, has been in the news for um, condensing their teaching down into, a three day, in, into three days during the week rather than across five. Yeah. This allows students some extra time to work. That's not necessarily the I'm not saying that's the solution we should go with, but it's a possible solution. Um, so, there's sort of internal university policies they might consider. There's um, wider sort of um, maybe government um, regulations around student support and how much students uh, get through their loans, whether there's more maintenance grants. Um, there's possible issues here to um, influence policy. Um, and possibly, if students are working for the universities themselves, um, they might have a bit more flexibility to still attend teaching events while still working. so that's a possibility that student, that universities might consider if they employ more of their students, they you know, get the income, they can afford their needs and wants, and improve yeah. their mental health, improve their employability um, but also allow them to study and attend all of their teaching events.
0: Great that sounds good and I know we're running out of time but one last thing that I thought was really interesting and I think you kind of talked about wanting to yeah. dig a little bit deeper into the data to look at kind of um, The the different types of work that the students are doing. And I found it particularly interesting because I know you you got some figures on this related to the students who are um, working for the university and the students who are working outside of the university. So, do you have any plans to kind of look at that in particular and kind of. The, the, if there's any significant differences um, between those students
5: Yeah, I mean we've had some uh, really interesting comments at the DPE yeah. conference um, relating to these kind of things, so we have some information that we get to analyse about the type of jobs um, that students are doing so we need to do a lot more into that and sort of understanding um, around how they're developing skills, where they're working, what types of jobs they're doing um, so this is stuff that we hope to Dig into a little bit more and analyze a bit further in the future.
0: Great, thank you very much. Thank you. I think it's really great to see research in this area, which ultimately comes down to trying to get more insight into the actual experiences of students at university. So hopefully we can you know, take this into consideration when thinking about university policy going forward and ultimately improve the experience of our students while studying. In fact, related to this, there was a theme that was dedicated to student support. And I was lucky enough to catch John Sloman, who chaired the session, for a quick chat about this John Sloman has been involved with the Economics Network since 1999, and is currently a visiting fellow at the University of Bristol and a visiting professor at the University of the West of England. Of course, he is also one of the authors of several leading economics textbooks. Um, I will have to apologize in advance um, about the slight drop in audio quality of this next clip, as you can hear the kind of hustle and bustle of everyone at the conference grabbing a coffee and chatting during the break, but. um, Um, Here is a clip from my chat with John where he was providing an overview of the papers that were presented in the student support session. Okay, so um, you were chairing the session on student support. So perhaps you could give us a bit of an overview of the sessions that were in there.
3: A lot had to do with student motivation. How can we encourage students to both attend and to perform better? So... We drew quite a lot. At least the presenters drew quite a lot on nudge theory of how to simple simple intervention and encourage students. So, uh, in the first presentation, it was about students doing dissertations or longer pieces of work like literature review, where they're given a long period of time to do it. Right. And typically, students procrastinate. Yes. They put things off. Say, Don't we? I'll all? do it tomorrow, or <laughs> when tomorrow comes, well, I'll do it the next day. When the next day comes. Oh, so. So how can you encourage students to engage sooner? Yeah. Because um, once they start engaging, then then it's not so bad. It's, it's That initial engagement is so hard. So one of the interventions in Southampton is to send emails to students reminding them of a task list. So they set up a weekly task list, yeah. which is available to all students. But this email in the control group, sorry, in the, in the, in the, treatment, the treatment group. Treatment, yeah. Treatment. Uh, they are sent this email reminding them to look at those particular tasks and expanding just what those tasks are about. I see. And the evidence suggests that students are engaging with it and they're not putting things off so much, trying to get extensions and things. Yeah. Um, the evidence is not quite so clear-cut about performance, mm. but uh, if students are engaging and they're not procrastinating, then it's obviously going to be in the students' interests. Yeah. To be like that. So that was quite, one very interesting one. Um, another one, the third one, was also about matching and again was sending emails. And this was about uh, seminar attendance or tutorial attendance. If students missed one, they were sent an email saying, "Oh, we're sorry that you, you missed it," and reminding them about the importance of attendance yeah. and so on. And they found out that again, there was a, a control group and treatment group. In the control group, they were exact, doing exactly the same course, mm. the same lecturing team, the same tutorials. But at different times, yeah. so they, there was no cross-contamination between the two groups, and the one group that were sent these notch email, they tended to attend much better than the students who weren't. So, I mean, those two simple interventions... Didn't yeah. Yes. Now, these are, this is work in progress. So, for example, if you need to send a second email out to students, because they missed it to, do you send the same email out, or do you amend it slightly? Mm, do you yes. tailor the emails more to individual students, encourage the students to come and see you if they've got problems? You know, mm. So, exactly what goes in the email, I mean, that's a work in progress. Yeah. But it, it, it does seem to be a very useful insight. Another paper, the middle paper... Um, leads um, that was looking at student motivation and they, they devised a, a student efficacy ranking so students look at their own performance their own motivation under a six point scale and students were engaging with this so that very good response rate because students were used to engaging in other respects because they have to look at video watch videos and respond to these videos so it's just right. like another trip to, to do this so it's something students are very in tune with responding in a sort of way. And they did find some quite useful evidence of the sort of things that determine student motivation. And once you understand what determines student motivation, then you can find out how how best to intervene. So this is very much what the network are doing, is to try and find out more efficient and effective ways uh, of student learning and what what members of staff eventually can do to help student learning. Um, so it's a mixture of research out what's going on, but yeah. also finding practical ways of intervening, because lecturers are always short of time. Yes, yeah. So if you say, well, you can intervene in this way and it's going to take a load of your time. Yeah. And that into world. <laughs> but if you can find ways of intervening which are not too costly in terms of time, but will improve student performance, yeah. then lecturers will grasp it. So yeah. this sort of research, uh, these sort of tests that are being done, I'm very, very useful in, in engaging students and improving student performance.
0: Yeah, and it works both ways. It can help to make our lives easier uh, as academics. And Absolutely. also, uh, yeah, and at the same time, we get those uh, benefits to the students. It sounds like a, a win-win. It is a win-win, but <laughs>
3: it's more rewarding, particularly if it's not terribly time-consuming. Yes. I mean, this is one of the things the network tries to do, is to find effective and timely ways of intervening that's not going to cost you a lot of time. Um, I mean, most of the lecturers coming here are people who are on a teaching track. Mm. Know, they're, they're, they're primarily employed as as teachers Yes, on uh, an, uh, an educational track. But one of the main things we're trying to do is to find ways for people who are primarily researchers who have got to do a bit of teaching, mm, an yes. effective way so that they can improve their teaching, which is not going to cost them a lot of time and effort. Yeah. Because who does? They're not interested. They just want to get on with their research. Absolutely. So deliver any old lecture. But if you can find ways in which they can improve student performance, who doesn't want to improve student performance? Yeah. you can <laughs> in a way that's not going to cost you much time and effort because yeah. of the research that people have done within the network. Yeah. Then that's something that people people generally grasp
0: that. Absolutely, sounds great. So uh, the last question I'll uh, ask from you is just, uh, where do you see this kind of uh, research going around kind of student support uh, in the near future?
3: I think people will carry on, but make it more sophisticated. Mm. So for example, if you're noticing just exactly what the nature of those matters is, do you nudge in this way or that way? Do, do, do you tailor the nudging more. When exactly do, do it to intervene? So looking at the evidence to try and find the most effective mm. ways of using these, these forms of intervention.
0: Yeah. And hopefully uh, AI maybe can play a role in helping us uh, AI, with
3: that. AI yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, AI is a big challenge for our identity, <laughs> Yes. But if you can use AI as a tool, you can't pretend is not No. Out. You've got to grasp it. Exactly. And grasp it around the neck and say, right, Well, for us. Get it on our
0: side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. So that was a clip of my chat with John Sloban. Honestly, I think I was a bit starstruck in that interview. I I feel like I was regretting not bringing my eighth edition uh, economics textbook and getting it signed by him. Uh, But yes, it sounds like there were lots of great ideas um, in that session about the ways in which we can improve student support through interventions. Another theme that was quite prominent at D was unsurprisingly uh, related to assessment. So there were some really fantastic papers related to things like group work, coursework versus exams, and of course, AI also made an appearance as well. So after the conference, I got the chance to talk to Maria Silu, an assistant professor in economics at the University of Birmingham, who alongside one of her co-authors presented a paper on the perspectives of academics in economics on using text generative AI in teaching teaching and assessment. So here is a clip of my discussion with her. Thank you so much, Maria, for for joining me uh, to record uh, this clip for the podcast. So we're going to talk now about your presentation. And I, I'm going to say the title because I absolutely love the title of your presentation and the kind of whole theme. So it was Essays in Economics in the ICU, Resuscitate or Pull the Plug. I thought that was just that was so good um so perhaps you could give us a, a little bit more uh explanation about uh, what your study was about and perhaps maybe the motivation behind it
2: yeah thank you so much for your kind words and your enthusiasm about our work uh yeah we wanted to find an interesting title to make sure there's something different because if we say again for gi maybe people will be oh one one of the usual that is uh, popular than these uh, days um, so, the motivation, first of all, is because we, as all universities, we've seen all of these rapid um, expansion of text generative AI uh, that's changing, that is changing the way educators are delivering content, assessment, and particularly the way that students are using the um, GAI, something that is um, a lot of interest to uh, all academics, especially in our department where we have a lot of uh, online um, assessments and especially essays. That's why we wanted to emphasize the essays. And the um, motivation also comes a bit before us. Since COVID, we had the um, transformation of online assessments. And this is where, even before COVID, there was a debate whether the essays are good or bad in assessing uh, students in economics. Then uh, we had the COVID that move everything online. And this is where the problem started to uh, expand, where students had the opportunity to use online resources and um, the contract cheating increased. And this is where we can see that we were trying to find solutions And what can we do about the essays where students have all the time to uh, maybe collaborate with each other, third-party services, uh, or even buy essays. So there is a concern there since COVID, wherever you move online. And after the year passed, uh, we can see that still this debate regarding essays is still there. And especially now, we have the introduction of GAI, where it makes uh, things even uh, more um, particular and more concerned as students can use GAI and submit an essay or a piece of work online. So as um, traditional teaching is not going to come back completely, it's 100%, Even with the move of some assessment in person, this problem doesn't really go away because Mm -hmm. we don't want just to go back to traditional things. We can, what we want to potentially um, underline is that we can use the GAI, get the benefits from it. And we also wanted to test, check whether academics believe that essays are still important in terms of employability skills for our graduates?
0: Yeah, that sounds super interesting. And some uh, clearly some very uh, important and relevant questions there that I'm pretty sure every single academic um, is is wanting to know the answers to, um, because it's definitely like AI is presenting kind of an opportunity, but also at the moment, it, it seems like a bit of a challenge for a lot of us trying to kind of navigate that. So what did you do in order to kind of investigate this then
2: so what we've done our methodology clearly it was we created a survey um and we uh, distribute try to get the responses from various universities across uh, uk um and we wanted to see also we wanted to see the experience level gender we had some demographics and uh, especially what they believe about essays in, in, in combining with other things regarding like uh, GAI and their concerns. So we're trying to see, first of all, as our uh, focus on our essays, how important is the written skill for academics if it is still important to see whether uh, GAI will lead to the death of essays or um, essays will still continue to be important for our uh, students. Um, we try to see, according to the academics, what is their best, their suggestions, actions about the essays, move away from essays, or if they suggest to um, change the criteria, maybe for the modules, or maybe assess the, create new assessment using the GAIE and uh, evaluate some other graduate skills. Or just continue as it is and then just um, related um, all the concerns to academic integrity. So we wanted to see exactly where they are, what they are thinking. As this is something very new for us, and um, we have the Russell Group universities that they publish the rules, but still we don't have a more specific guidance. And we wanted to see what academics believe. And for the future, long term, because maybe short term, they suggest something and then long term, they can see they have other vision. Mm.
0: So then could you perhaps share some of your key findings with us? Or um, And in particular, was there anything particularly surprising in your results?
2: Yes. Uh, while we when we ask uh, whether um, the academics had a lot of written coursework as essays, you know, their assessments, the majority, they had a low percentage of written coursework. despite these surprises that they still believe uh, that written skills and essays are still important in economics, which shows that it's critical for us to find a way, working all collaboratively, how to prevent the threat from GAI and also making better the quality of the essays and careful consideration. We also found that... Um, we had various of suggestions depending on experience level. So the more experienced academic, we ask academics whether they want to engage in discussion, go to conferences, how they are looking to familiarize themselves with GAI. And um, the more experienced they want to engage in discussions or attend conferences while the, um, the ones that they are not new, they are interested um, more in self-learning. So we we found that the majority still believe that re-test skills are important, that it's vital to our students on the ethical use. So this is something that underlined along our survey that it is important to make sure that we find a way, we don't know how yet, to use ethically and GAI in our teaching and assessment. And while most respondents are familiar with GAI, still there is a divided approach for how to incorporate the GAI into teaching. And um, something else we found is that the majority expressed interest in learning more about GAI. So there is an interest around, even some people that aren't using as much as others, they still want to learn and um, they really want to find a way maybe through trainings or discussions, engage discussion with students, colleagues to find a way to familiarize themselves.
0: That's super interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's really uh, probably particularly useful to understand how different academics, as you said, at different experience levels, and there's some other factors as well, which kind of influence how they want to learn um, about AI. And I suppose going forward, that, sh- that will be really important for kind of like university initiatives and and this kind of thing it also seems from reading about your work that there's kind of like there's there's these two sides because you mentioned that there's like this preference from academics to maybe in the immediate term move away from from essays but then at the same time it's clear that a lot of us also think that producing this written content is really important so um what what are your suggestions kind of going forward then based on that?
2: So, yeah, there was a bit of a different opinion uh, regarding the short plan and long run because as we can imagine, long run, it will give us more time to familiarize ourselves and um, maybe get more training and be more sure on what um, uh, how incorporate the NGI maybe more responsibly. Uh, and as you said, it's very interesting to see the different views. And um, so the the plan is, uh, first of all, we need to raise awareness and make sure there is some training and share best, pra- best practices among us, academics and different university institutions, because it's a collaborative effort where it's something very new and we need to find ways to protect ourselves, our students, at the same time get the benefits from it and don't be scared. <laughs> AI. So this is the challenge, I think, from all of us. and make sure that we create a space for experimentation, give some time to ourselves, because for the short run, short run we cannot do much as the assessments are already, we know what assessments we are doing. So there is a bit of space for experimentation, but uh, not into the level that some of us maybe want. So we need to make sure that there is a consultation between academic students and employers as uh, we focus on the essays as is a part of our employability skills that is one of the graduate attributes that we believe is important and we consider still is important despite the GAI and the contract cheating that is increasing. So hopefully there will be a uh, collaborative effort among institutions and employers to find a way to uh, protect this skill and how to use GAI to help Uh, enhance the quality of these schemes instead of taking out of it. Yeah yeah definitely and I think um, research like
0: this is super important right for kind of um, contributing to that discussion and I'm really looking forward to seeing you know in a a couple of years time what this what this all looks like. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: So this is certainly a kind of watch this space area. And I think research like this and discussions like this in particular are really important when thinking about how we can best adopt AI. Okay, so sticking with the assessment theme, I also got to catch up with two of my colleagues from Aston University, so that's John Guest and Robert Riegler, who in a different session presented their ongoing work on the impact of peer evaluation in assessed group work. So John Guest is a senior teaching fellow at Aston University and is in the executive group of the Economics Network, and of course he is also one of the co-authors of several leading economics textbooks. Robert Regler is a senior teaching fellow at Aston and an associate of the Economics Network. So here is a clip of our discussion. Thank you so much for joining us John and Robert. So what you presented at D was based on assessing the impact of peer evaluation in assessed group work and, and I think this is really interesting because as we all know I think we really want to be able to develop that important skill of our students being able to work as part of a team But we also know that assessed group work can come with a a lot of difficulties, particularly in relation to uh, free riding. So I'm quite excited uh, to hear uh, more about it from you both. Perhaps we could start by describing your motivation behind carrying out the work.
6: Well, I think just repeat what you just said, really, was that obviously uh, group work was is really important. It develops skills that we think are important um and uh students are quite resistant to group work and effectively when you speak to students they really would quite like the mark to reflect the differences that might have occurred in the group uh in the contributions of the different team members so really part of the uh, motivation was to come up with a way of trying to adjust the marks so there was some variation in the marks that were allocated to different team members that might uh, more accurately reflect the different uh, contributions that were made by the different group members and so improve student satisfaction with the process and i think i'd add to that we we you know there are lots of different ways that you could possibly do this but we teach quite large modules you know we've got 2 300 students so we're looking for a method that's manageable and we thought by using some software that that peer evaluation was a more manageable way of trying to 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 do this when we've got modules with large numbers of students on them
0: Great. Yeah, that sounds really good. And you mentioned there, uh, a software that you use. So my next question uh, is related to outlining um, the peer evaluation scheme that you actually use and then the software that you use to do this.
6: So, yes. Yeah, so we used um, a piece of software called Teammates, which is free um, and it's quite easy to use. And um Some colleagues had used it. A couple of learning technologists had used it and had recommended it um, uh, as a piece of software to use. So what we basically did to cut a very long story short is there's there's all sorts of different types of just to say you're going to use peer evaluation. Well, there's lots of different types of peer evaluation scheme. And we opted for what I'm going to call a fixed point scheme. And that basically meant that the students had to allocate a fixed number of effort points um, to their their, their fellow team members in a way that uh, they thought reflected the different contributions that those team members had made. So, for example, it doesn't have to be, but we, we fix the number of effort points at 100. So let's imagine there's six people in the team so each member of the team has to split those hundred effort points up amongst their five team members if they thought that each of the team members was uh, had contributed equally they would give them each 20 points obviously five times 20 is 100 but let's imagine i'd work with robert in a team and i thought oh robert's putting more effort than the other team members i might give him 25 30 points. And I might give another member of the team who I thought had put less effort into the team, uh, the, the, the production of the assessed group work, maybe 15, 10 points, whatever. But obviously, the five scores that I gave, they must add up to uh, to 100. And then the we, we take the average of the score a person receives and we then compare that with the score they'd have got if they'd have all they'd have done a sort of fair or equal contribution. So you can then do that to create something called a contribution index. So let's imagine that Robert's average score that all his colleagues gave him was twenty-five. And we've said in our group of six that 20 would be the score that you get if everybody contributed equally. So Robert's going to have a contribution index greater than one because 25 is bigger than 20. And hence his part of his group work, Mark, is going to be adjusted upwards to reflect the fact that he put more uh, in. And I suppose the obvious follow up question to preempt it would be we weighted the, the bit we adjust. We didn't adjust the whole group work mark. We adjusted 25 percent of the mark and 75 percent was just allocated equally uh, without uh, using the peer evaluation scores.
0: Yep. Sounds good. And so um, so you've, you've described the, the kind of scheme that you implemented. What were you actually interested in investigating then after implementing this?
7: So, actually, this project, uh, what we're looking at, is a very big project. It has a lot of different dimensions we have, uh, we want to focus on. And at the D-conference, we only focus on one specific element. Because um, uh, we undertook uh, focus group meetings with students just to talk about the experiences they had with uh, teammates with our peer evaluation software. I want to see... How do they like peer evaluation? Do they like it? Did it solve all our problems? What we uh, what we yeah hope the program will will help us to solve, and yeah, the the comments I would say John it, it's fair to say they were mixed. There were some positive uh, comments of students who really liked the way of evaluating students, but there was also some criticism. And one of the criticism that were raised was all about the fear that students do not really evaluate the actual performance of the peers, but there's some other factors that influence them like friendship, okay? Let's say if John and I were in a group, we both would each give other high marks because we know each other, okay? And therefore this, uh, this fear of collusion, if we both give each other higher marks, that means other students get lower marks. And even if they worked hard, they felt there is a danger that yeah, the marks are distorted. And this is actually the focus what we had for our presentation at the D conference.
0: That's super interesting. So now maybe you could give us a little bit of a flavor into how you actually did this quantitative analysis to, to mm-hmm. figure out if there is uh, collusion or not.
7: I mean, the first thing we have to say is it's very difficult to identify collusion. Let's say again, we have a group where John and I give each other high marks and all the other students give each other lower marks. And we were thinking, uh, is it actually always collusion? And we came up with four different arguments actually that yeah, it's maybe really collusion. John and I conspire against all the other students just at our benefit. It's like homo-economicus idea. We don't care about the rest. We just want to make ourselves better off than others. But there could be other yeah, uh, uh, explanation as well. It could be asymmetric information that if John and I, when we both work together, we can actually experience the hard work of others. And the reason why we give each other a higher mark, because we can actually observe that we both work more. Let's say we both work on the same task and therefore uh, the asymmetric information uh, uh, disappears. And uh, another point is it could be just a cognitive bias. You know, people who have the same beliefs, the same outlook, the same uh, way of working, they may just want what each other higher marks because they agree with each other. You know, it's like uh, yeah, uh, similar people maybe uh, yeah, like each other more, therefore, they're going to give each other higher marks. So these are the three things we would have to say. This could be an explanation. And also, the, actually, the most obvious explanation could also be, maybe John and I actually we worked harder than the rest of the team. Maybe the higher mark what we receive is an actual uh, reflection of the hard work we put in. Now, what we try to do is, it's difficult, the first three items that I mentioned before, to separate them from each other. But what we tried is to find a quantitative measure that can help us to separate at least point one to three, whatever race, from the last point about the actual contribution. And this is this was the starting point then for our quantitative measure. Mm-hmm. So very briefly, we need to give you an idea how it works. We did a two-step procedure. In the first step, we would just want to identify what we call mutual high scoring. So we looked at a student pair, IJ. We want to see. How many points did student I give student J above the average point that student I has awarded? And we looked then also the, the reciprocal way. We looked at what is the, the number of points student J, student I gave above average. And then we multiply them with each other. And then it was quite easy for us to see if it's a positive value. And both students gave each other a mark above the average. Then with their mutual high scoring. This would be our first step. And I also have some results as well. Out of all the student pair observation what we had, it's around 17% of the student pairs what we could observe. We found mutual high scoring. Okay, so there was the first step. Now, does mutual high scoring mean there is collusion? Of course it doesn't mean it. This is just two students give each other higher marks. As I said, it could be the case that the two students really worked harder, therefore deserve it. Now to to go in the next step, we only look now at the subsample of student where we uh, identified mutual high scoring. Now, if I give John a mark above average, in the second step, we also look at what is the average mark all the other students have given John. If we find out that I give John above average but all the other students also give John a mark above the average then it's actually not an issue of collusion. It's just John rec- Pretty hard, and he deserves it. So this is what we did in the next step. Then we we uh yeah we 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 uh, compared the mark given with the average mark given by other students, and then we want to see out of all the the seventy percent of mutual high scoring, how many students, you know, how many observations are actually a potential case of collusion. And in the end, when we looked at it in our data, only around four percent of our Neutral uh, of our older pairs, what they had, we would say there's a potential case of collusion. So it's rather small, but it it doesn't have to be collusion. It could be also cognitive bias. It could be uh, asymmetric information. So you're not able to identify it, but it's actually a rather small amount.
0: That's very interesting. Thank you. And I think um, it's it's particularly interesting that you've managed to kind of come up with this uh, way to measure collusion because that's obviously uh, very challenging. And I teach industrial organizations, so we talk about collusion all the time. And we often are looking to try to prevent um, certain situations from arising that would give rise to collusion because it's so hard to actually identify collusion when it actually happens. So it's interesting to see that the, you know, theory of collusion is actually uh, very well linked to this um, and all the different factors that you described as well. Um, really, really interesting. So I'm sure everybody listening would like to know what the kind of implications of all of this is and perhaps it can maybe lead to some advice which you might be able to offer any colleagues who are looking to maybe implement peer evaluation themselves.
7: One thing what we found out then at the end of our studies even though the number of potential cases of collusion is small, it really matters to students. So this is something we shouldn't underestimate the perception of peer evaluation if they are aware or if they are afraid of collusion. So I think what we found is it's good to use a measure To identify groups where there's a potential case of collusion, and once you identify them, that you can act on them, just to make sure that students are aware. Look, there is a mechanism. If we identify collusion, and we have this very great measure to identify it, that students are maybe yeah started to worry less. But as I said, even though it's it seems to be a small problem, students really care about it. Therefore, have to deal with it.
6: And just to go back to the point you raised, Karishma, a bit like the industrial organisation literature, perhaps the key is also to prevent it happening in the first place by warning the students, making it clear that you're going to, you have a mechanism that will be checking for these sorts of unusual uh, patterns and these indicators of collusion. And if you think there's evidence of it taking place, that you might then have to get that those group members in for a chat about the what happened in the group dynamics before the final mark is is allocated and also then giving students just more confidence with the whole system really
0: I guess my final question would be related to okay so we've talked about kind of collusion and peer evaluation are there any other uh kind of drawbacks that you've identified related to peer evaluation that maybe we should watch out for or maybe this links to uh, something that you're going to do in the future in this area.
6: So I think you've got you've got the issue about peer evaluation generally you know does it does it actually deter the development of these team skills that you really want to develop and secondly are, we then got to look at the strengths and weaknesses if you then say well I'm still going to use peer evaluation what are the strengths and weaknesses of the different designs you could use because there are so many different variations of peer, dis, uh, peer evaluation out there that you can use.
0: Great that sounds really interesting and um, can't wait to see uh, where the research ends up going. Thank you so much. Yeah, so super interesting work there. And actually, I'm particularly interested in this, uh, given that recently I've reintroduced assessed group work into a final year module, which I lead at Aston, uh, following John and Robert's research. So I'm using a peer evaluation scheme slightly different to the one that was described in that clip. And um, that's basically going to form part of some ongoing research that a couple of us um, including, of course, John and Robert, and also Matt Oljak are going to be involved in. So it will be good to uh, p- potentially in, in a future uh, de-conference share that with you as well. Right, so that brings us to the end of the first of this two-part special episode based on the D Conference organised by the Economics Network. Thank you so much to all the kind speakers who agreed to take part. And of course, thank you uh, for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode so far, please do share it with anybody else who you think might be interested. And remember that there are also lots of other episodes on this podcast already available. And uh, there are lots more to come as well. If you're interested in getting involved with the podcast, then please do just drop me an email. I'm always looking for um, more people uh, to talk to. So in part two, we're going to be hearing from more fantastic speakers from the conference, including, of course, the keynote speaker, Gail Hoyt. Thanks for listening and see you in the next one.